of this evening's talk is on wise attention. The word dharma, in the Sanskrit spelt D-H-A-R-M-A, has a wide variety of meanings. One of the meanings of this concept is dharma means teaching, and the teaching specifically which refers to the actualities of life. The word dharma in a similar context means truth. It means the law, the law of the, of the nature. The word dharma also means everything, every item, seen or unseen, known or unknown. And so, in some respects, we can say that we live in dharma, we breathe dharma, we move through dharma, day in, day out, every moment of our lives. And the major use which we use here of this word dharma, meaning the teaching. And the teaching as such, the dharma, the message of dharma as such, is certainly not to, to gather, gather followers in, in any way and to accumulate people, accumulate numbers, especially if one begins to see and appreciate the, the basic unity in existence. It really seems rather ridiculous accumulating when all is one already. And then the Dharma, the word Dharma, also has, or the teaching rather, has nothing to do with any special belief systems, any particular set of ideas. And so easy it is to build up for ourselves uh, an edifice of thought in some way or other, only to see that it's something which is a, a construction of mind, and what is constructed becomes destructed. Similarly, the Dharma too is not something which is to support a, a particular school or a, or a particular tradition, particular schools of thought or schools of practice or traditions may certainly be useful, but too they may be limited. A tradition may be such that it's ill-remembered. It, it may be such that there are various aspects of it which are, are misleading. A tradition may be one which only takes one part of the way. And it can be very easy that we find ourselves identifying with a school or identifying with, with a tradition and in not recognizing perhaps certain limitations we become one of the people, a man, a man or a woman who joins the queue of blind men and women in one school of thought, one set of ideas. And though it's valuable to appreciate tradition, it's valuable to appreciate being in the company of, of like-minded people. It's valuable to appreciate the Dharma itself, the teaching itself. But the essential thing is, the important thing is, the real application of wise attention to life. And the Dharma is really around and centered around that, wise attention to living.
And in giving wise attention to life, we of course need to pre-appreciate, need to, to see into the, the actualities of our life. And in fact, if our faith, trust, confidence, is directed anywhere towards anything, it's in our ability to be aware. So it's not especially in some teacher or some guru or some philosophy, but it's a faith in being aware of actuality. Siddhartha Gautama Siddhartha, one of the teachers who has the title of the Buddha, meaning one who has awakened and, and points the way, often referred and, and spoke to spoke of the value, the great value of being a human being. And speaking in context of the whole, whole scheme of things, he tried to indicate the blessing of being born as a, as a human being in, in terms of the whole context of life. And he uses an, an analogy for it. He said it's rather like the yoke which is floating on the, on the ocean. And on the vast ocean there is this single yoke there on, bobbing up and down on the ocean. And by chance, once every hundred years, a turtle decides to surface. And in, and in surfacing to the ocean, it happens to put itself up in between that yoke, which the, which the plowman had uh, left behind. And the Buddha said, to the, when he was telling the story to, the, to his friend, what sort of chance is that? Think of it. Once every hundred years, up comes the turtle. And on this vast ocean, there's a yoke, and it puts its head up. And his friend said, well, sir, well, Bhante, venerable sir. Indeed, that would be an extraordinary coincidence. That would be incredibly rare. <laughs> and then the Buddha says, reflect on that, remember that. For just as rare is this birth as a human being in this cosmos. And we might even just consider it relative to being here, being in Barry in a meditation center. And if you just go outside, you only have to see, count, go into the woods in the early morning or in the evening. Just think of the number of mosquitoes there are, <laughs> let alone the number of millions of tiny insects and creatures in one tiny area. And when one begins just to reflect a little bit, this human birth is extremely rare. And the Buddha, continuing and speaking about, about this, also referred to it in, its, in context, whether one believes or not, it's really rather irrelevant, I feel, in the context of rebirth. And he said, rare it is for a man and woman to take birth again as a human being. And so in, time to, in terms of that type of context, it's, it would appear being born as a human being is a very rare opportunity. And it perhaps gives one a sense of sensitivity and a sense of urgency in life to, while one is alive, to look carefully into life. And our faith is directed in that respect to being aware of life, being aware in and through every situation.
and even amongst the great numbers of people that there are who, are who are living, few again, a tiny, tiny few, have this opportunity, this rather rare opportunity. And when we begin just to, to slow down and to, to observe, we begin to see more obviously the action of mind, the action of body, and what is actually, what is actually happening. If one sees it in terms or in in context of, of self and of, of consciousness, we see that at times our consciousness is directed to particular areas. And when I speak of consciousness, what I'm referring to very simply is that element of the mind which is conscious of something giving attention to something, that element of mind. And at times that element of being conscious of something goes from one thing to another. When we are conscious of one thing, we're not so conscious of something else. So, for example, when, you are, when your attention is directed outwardly and you become conscious of something around you, someone you see and so forth, at that time you're not so conscious of mind and its movement. You're not so conscious of body. And at other times, there's not the consciousness of the external, but a new object comes into this field of consciousness. And this is kind of the, the dynamics of life. Different items, different phenomena in this universe coming into our field of consciousness and passing out of it. Sometimes it's a sight or a sound or a smell, or a taste, or a touch, in the world of the five senses. Sometimes it's in terms of the, the whole physical body. Sometimes it's the mind. And when we refer to the mind, meaning feelings and thoughts and moods and experiences and interests and attitudes and so forth. So there's this constant interplay of phenomena entering the field of consciousness and passing out. This is what we experience, this is how, how we see, see life. And the consciousness itself is being determined or affected or influenced by past. Not only, for example, when we make contact with what is around us, with our eye, there is eye consciousness. And the consciousness is in associationship with the eye, we call seeing. Consciousness is an association with hearing and with smelling and tasting and touching. And then sometimes the past accumulations, we might call it past, we might call it unconscious or whatever word is appropriate, comes into consciousness and is an influencing factor in how we see, in how we relate, etc., etc. So the kind of dynamic sort of interplay of things is, we might say, on the one hand, the sense data coming from the world, entering into consciousness, and there is consciousness which is supported by various tendencies, by various accumulations, etc., etc. This we experience as our life experience. And the application of wise attention is seeing this more and more clearly. The interaction when we see and when we hear and so forth, and how the mind relates 
or reacts to that. The reaction and the relationship, of course, varies considerably according to your own accumulations. And the situation here, like in life, provides numerous opportunities. For example, for some days in the retreat together, there has been a group walking meditation. And this is a wonderful kind of opportunity, again, to see the reaction in consciousness and how sometimes the reaction takes a foothold, even, even prior to the experience. Even before, for example, we do something, the mind has already formulated how it's going to be, what it's like. Have you noticed? And how difficult it is to enter something into something with, in a spacious, open way. So you, you come outside the door, and you see perhaps 50 or 60 people queuing. You don't like that for a start. <laughs> <laughs> you see this file of people, and again the associations come in. School, the army, the shop, the social security, and this <laughs> and the other. So there's this contact. We make contact with the world and we see something and from that seeing of something it touches something and there is re the reaction. If there is unwise attention, if we don't see that take place, that reaction takes a foothold in consciousness. And when the, when the reaction takes a foothold in consciousness we become spellbound by it. And then, perhaps, people start walking. Why are they walking so slowly? <laughs> I feel stupid. Or, they're walking too quickly. I've been walking too quickly all my life, I want to walk slowly. And the, and the mind kind of goes back and front, deciding whether or not to stay, or to go, or to continue, or to drop out, or so forth. And all of that is the kind of phenomenal reaction which is taking place in, in the mind. The actual event itself is nothing special, it's quite neutral. But that phenomenal mental process is where we see, where we, where we learn about ourselves. So the whole, the whole key really is one in allowing for that contact with the world what you see and what you hear, but primarily with a mind which isn't grasping. You see the event, you see what takes place within and observe it. In, in giving wise, wise attention to, to practice, it covers literally actually every area of your practice. It covers your sitting, it covers your walking, it covers the whole movement of activity. Sometimes in, a, in, in the person's practice, certain fears arise. In different ways, there's a sensation or the feeling or the um, emotion of fear. For some people, when they look at themselves, rather they look at the mind, in relationship to that, the mind gets divided up into 
or is split. And this, this division which is made in the mind is both the conscious mind of what is happening in the present and this unconscious mind. And when one makes that kind of division in the mind and cherishes it, that very easily gives rise to fear. And there is so much emphasis and by the psychologists and the, and the people concerned with the mind and so forth, that people begin to fear, well, I don't know if this could come up or, or that could come up and perhaps I couldn't handle it, etc., etc. And so this rather has developed a, a rather deeply rooted idea in our, in our culture, not in every culture, but certainly in the Western culture, of having to work everything out. And so people do expose themselves, put themselves in extremely intense situations with a view to trying to work everything out. And that, and that uh, working everything out is when the mind is clinging to, to, to an idea of conscious and unconscious mind. And, then, and when the conscious mind seems rather thin and frail, the, con yes, the unconscious mind seems very powerful, very threatening. And this becomes a source, a, a cause for concern <coughs> in a person's practice. And it seems to me there is another way of looking at this which is radically different, which doesn't cherish those notions so strongly. Once the Buddha was out, out walking and he saw a man, an ascetic, a sadhu, in a particular, who belongs to one of the Indian traditions. And this man was, stand, was just standing, doing a rather similar practice to us. But his motive of the mind, which is very important in meditation practice, his motion, mo motive of the mind was one of, I am standing here, and according to the tradition which he came from, the belief was, if I stand here, or if I just sit, I, I do not create any new karma, and by not creating any new karma, I can work out my old karma. Wonderful idea, this. <laughs> so he was standing there, not for 30 minutes, hours, days, just standing there, fasting and standing, fasting and standing, and, and so it went on. And the Buddha came up to him and, and said to him, asked him what he was doing, and he explained his, the, the, the practice and the teaching that he received. And the Buddha said to him, um, how much of your karma, your old tendencies, the, the unconscious, whatever you want to call it, how much of this old karma have you worked out? Oh. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and then he said to him, tell me, um, how much of this karma that you're working out, how much have you got left to go? <laughs> oh. Um, then he said, tell me again, how much of the 
How will you know when you've worked it out? Oh. <laughs> Are you, do you really know that you've worked anything really out? That it's not just all fallen back? So this man had been standing there cherishing this, a, a belief that he was working out karma. The Buddha's remarks to him were, and quote, this is fruitless effort and fruitless striving. Pretty strong words. People also come into a meditation retreat and the mind has got conditioned in one idea cherishes it, nurtures on it, feeds on it, and ah, believes it. And the belief of it, and the nurturing of it, unfortunately gives, makes the practice one of unwise attention. So, what is the way, what would be another way of looking at the whole situation of the phenomenal mental processes which doesn't create the division between conscious and unconscious. You know, in a similar way with regard to working things out and trying to get rid of things and overcome things and etc., etc., the idea gets developed in the mind that I must go from what I call gross to what I call deep. Or I must go from this um, chattering, superficial mind, which I call my upper levels, and I must get to my deeper levels. Another wonderful idea which is clung to. And so, and, and so sometimes the mind thinks of the deeper levels as being when I'm more calm, and more still, and less agitated, and less, and and and, uh, and inwardly deeply nice and peaceful, and inwardly absorbed. This, for some, they call deep. Someone else thinks of going deep in a completely different way. They think of going deep as meaning touching those deeply rooted emotions and deeply rooted past experiences. Uh, the traumas of early childhood and the past lives, or whatever you want to think about. And, and, so, and sometimes the same person thinks of going deep as being both of those. Funny, isn't it? What are you going to do with that one? It's almost like you've got a lift, and you're at the top floor of the building, and one lift takes you down to the deep piece, and if you jump in the other lift, it's going to take you down to the deeply rooted emotions. Ideas, thoughts, <coughs> feelings, sensations, and experiences which, upon which the label goes on. And it seems to be almost real and self-evident. This is all through grasping. This exists through the grasping of various types of sensation, which one calls shallow, superficial, which one calls middle, or which one calls deep.
essentially practice is not concerned with that. Basically, fundamentally, the practice is not concerned with that. Whether the mind appears as superficial or appears as the is not the essential element of a life of awareness. So how, which way can we see in a different way? In our, in our relationship to life, we look at the world, and in looking at the world, we see the world as a wide variety of different objects, which we have said, which come into the field of consciousness and pass out. This we experience day in, day out, and constitutes life. We take our attention, temporarily, off the world and we put it on the body. And in placing it on the body, we experience again the phenomenal presentation of feelings, vibrations, aches, pains, warmth, tingling, etc., which we call body, coming into consciousness, passing out of consciousness. And in the same way, we experience it with the mind. Seeing things, therefore, more clearly is seeing the actuality of what is. To the extent that our, as it were, conscious mind, what you're feeling right now, your mood right now, your thoughts right now, whatever is happening, the, both the conscious mind, as it were, and the unconscious mind are objects. They are objects. And as objects, they are relative and, real, uh, and connected to each other. So there's no question, really, in terms of wise attention, to be so much concerned with working things out, so much con concerned with, with past and the accumulation and present and the phenomena of what is taking place. Just the seeing things clearly and seeing things more clearly is such that what one calls past or unconscious and conscious, as it were, are right out there in front of you. And the, and the, and the practice is, is sensing that, is beginning to intuitively see and recognize that. Because the job or the task of working things out is endless and ultimately frustrating. If you, if you think and, and live upon, upon those lines, how do you know that every time you create a big commotion in the mind, every time you have an explosion or a cathartic event, you're not simply blowing up the mind, blowing up into consciousness, and then it all goes da 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 da, da <laughs> and it's all back where it started. So you get a temporary relief of pressure only for it to settle back and you're back where you began. So at the level or the standpoint of practice which I am speaking from, some people, in other words, seems have to experience for themselves to see that more clearly. 
But from the level and practice I'm speaking from, practice is one in which gradually, through wise attention, through clear seeing, the consciousness steadies itself. And the steadying of the, of the consciousness is one in order to see the mental phenomena and the movement of it, the body and its movement, the world and its movement, more and more clearly. When the consciousness with all the field of phenomena comes into it and its consciousness is supported by a dependency, if you are dependent on anything in the phenomenal, mental, physical, environmental world, then consciousness wavers, it becomes unsteady. And when consciousness is unsteady, you can't see clearly. Now practice our meditation is towards steadying of consciousness. Now, if we look at the phenomena of what we call ourselves, we call it body and mind. We know that, the, that the, in actuality there's no real twosome of body and mind. If anything, we could put a hyphen as a convenience. Body and mind are interrelated, interdependent. And the body and mind come into the field of consciousness. And it's rather like, when we look at areas of body or areas of mind, and we hold on to it, it means we are seizing upon very, various aspects of this aggregate called the human being. Sometimes you seize on the body, pain. Sometimes you seize on your feelings and your moods and you grasp hold of that. <clears throat> Sometimes you seize upon your thoughts and the thoughts and the ideas and likes and dislikes, etc., etc. And it's rather similar to going into the wood and you see on the ground there, you see uh, old, some old wood and you see some branches and you see some twigs <clears throat> and you see some leaves and you see some bushes and you kind of gather the whole lot up. And in gathering this whole, whole lot up, one has a whole bundle there. And that is what one has done with the mind-body. It's as though, as an analogy, one has kind of put one's arms around this phenomena and taken a hold of it and gathered it up. Body, feelings, perceptions, moods, thoughts, likes, interests, attitudes and so forth. And gathered that up. And the gathering of that up means that there's a turning onto that and a turning out of everything else. And this is called thyself. Another line in the mind. What to do with it? There's no evidence for it anywhere. It's not to go so far as to say, no self. That is an extreme, I feel, in a kind of extremist view. But that which is observable, body, mental activity, 
is not thyself. That phenomenal expression and those experiences which you see, if you didn't see, you wouldn't know they were there. But you say, oh, today, every day you come upstairs and you say, oh, my mind. This mind of mine. My thoughts are getting more settled. Every day you're describing body-mind states. And the description of body-mind states is because you observe it. Why call it thyself? So, practice is seeing clearly and not gathering up and holding on to it with the mistaken notion of this is thyself. The doing of that and the, and the whole cherishing of that, as long as that continues, there can be no end to suffering. So now, the practice, the way of the practice, is truly one of seeing things clearly. Just seeing things as they are, without the extra going on it, me and myself. Each time you come, for example, each time you come to the meditation, to, sorry, to upstairs and you communicate with Tina or I, please be aware whenever the little monster eye pops its head up. And just see, when the little eye pops its head up, what it's in relationship to. And recognizing that when eye comes up, it's, you find in one conversation, it's in reference to so many different things of the bundle. Constantly changing. Sometimes it's sense of I am, I in relationship to consciousness. Sometimes I in relationship to my thoughts, I in relationship to this and that. And just being aware of what it comes up in relationship to is the application of wise attention. So that our practice, our meditations, is clearly, clearly seeing what is happening. Once, uh, a leper named Superbuddha, at the time of the Buddha, went to, um, was in this place, in this uh, park, and the Buddha was giving a talk about life and about, and about the nature of things. And this super, this man, super Buddha, leper, um, went there and he actually, initially he went there with the, with the motive of get him, getting some free kana, meaning some free food, and then begging, bakshish, bakshish, you know the language. So, when he was there, in that particular day, the, the Buddha was giving a talk. And he just came and he just listened to what was being said. That application of attention and just listening to the way of things, the life of actuality, is wise attention. And in that very listening, even because he came with no expectations, no images, no ideas, or anything like that, he wasn't even interested in hearing any Dharma. So it just kind of turned up. And he just sat and thought, well, I wonder what this bloke's talking about. 
And he lent his ear, it is said, and he listened. And in that listening, he understood the truth of things. And so practice really, and, and, and meditation really, is really to see what you can see for yourself already. It merely, meditation really confirms what is true already, by just seeing it. Seeing the phenomenal presentation of mind, of body, of the world. So we see, in our practice, in our, in our meditation, consciousness, just to repeat a little, consciousness becomes formed or influenced by that with, with which it is in contact. And in that making of the contact with that, we see the element of mind coming in, in some way or other. Owing to wise attention, or to say the same thing, owing to awareness, we are able to see and embrace that. So the important element of our practice is not the object which is seen as such. It's not the seeing of the body as such, the seeing or the awareness of attention to the breath as such, nor is it the object of the mind as such, but the seeing. It hinges, it centers on the seeing. In other words, on awareness. You know, the man came and he said to the, he said to the Buddha, Oh, tell me, sir, Bhante, tell me. In this world, we see the sights, there are sights which come, and the whole field of phenomena of light and shade and color and so forth. What is the locus for all of this phenomenal activity of um, the various things around? What is the locus for all of that? And the Buddha said, the locus for all of that is the eye. When you open your eye, you can see a numerous number of different things. The locus for all of this is the eye. All comes together in the eye. The man said, oh, Bhante, tell me this. What's the locus for the eye and the ear and the nose and the taste and the touch? What's the locus? Where does all of that, those sense store activities, what's the locus for that? And... The Buddha said, ah, well, all of that information, all of that, comes to the mind. That's the locus for the mind. Ah, ah, very interesting. What's the locus for the mind? The Buddha said, the locus for the mind? The locus for the mind is awareness. All the action of awareness, or rather the action of the mind, all comes into the field of awareness, or consciousness, whatever concept we want to use, it doesn't matter. And then the man said, guess what he said? <laughs> What's the locus for this awareness? In what is this awareness? And the Buddha said, this awareness, is lo the locus for it, is grounded in freedom. The man said, Bhante. Oh, I'm sorry. What's the locus, I repeat? What's the locus 
for awareness. And the Buddha said, the locus for awareness is freedom. Guess what he said next? <laughs> oh, Bhante, what's the locus for freedom? And the Buddha said, the locus, what freedom, what awareness and freedom is grounded in, is Nirvana, is the absolute peace. And then he said again, Oh, Bhante, what's the locus for Nirvana? The Buddha said, this is going too far. <laughs> okay. So the basic, fundamental, is awareness. To be a human being is to be aware. The ability to be aware is one which gives us a growing power, ability to accommodate the world, to accommodate the body, and to accommodate the mind. <laughs> Owing to awareness, the entire universe cosmos, in all its fields and dimensions, can be accommodated. And our practice, therefore, is basically one of using particular objects, which we breath or, or body, and those objects and giving of attention to them again and again, wise attention to them, steadies the consciousness. That steadying of the consciousness is the prerequisite. The steadying of the sense of consciousness, the, the, the being aware of. The steadying of that and being aware of is the prerequisite for true, clear seeing into actuality. Even when consciousness is in movement or some fluctuation, only through grasping and not through anything else, still, we can still see through the sea. We can still recognize that. Just like you can be... Uh, you can be sitting on a swing, you know, you can be swinging backwards and forth. And when you're swinging backwards and forth, things may not seem so clear, but you can recognize a tree. It might be a bit of a blur. And you can recognize a building and somebody passing by. But when you are still on that swing, and just sitting still, you see more clearly. Consciousness becomes more and more steady. This steadying factor is a prerequisite. For true clear seeing. And in true clear seeing, there is freedom. There is the highest peace. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into themselves. May all beings know the highest peace. Turn the cassette over at this point for the second talk. ...of this evening's talk is finding space. There are obviously 
many considerations which we, which we give to our lives. And among the considerations which we have is the one of space. And in this area of our appreciation of space, we employ different ways of me and means in our life to finding and securing more space. And, some, and there are, of course, the very, very familiar ways in which we seek to find space, in which we perhaps remove ourselves temporarily from a, sit, a situation which is um, obstructive, difficult, hard to work with, and we find and we make in our life some, some opportunity to be in a place or a situation where there is more space of some order. And we see that this finding of space for us can be physically healthy and particularly psychologically insofar as that the finding of it in a particular place, a particular environment helps to ease the, pr and the pressure which is on the mind. Because when we look at the, the reality of the world which we are living in, we see again and again that there are upon us all forms of objective pressure. And this objective pressure affects us psychologically, physically, and at times we need a break from it. Having and finding a break from this, from the various kinds of pressure takes the weight off the mind and in that comes a certain lightness, a certain relaxation. And we find too in our lives that when we have taken the opportunity to, to do that, all too quickly we often find we have to return to the situation sometimes a formidable situation where we were exposed to pressure and we felt it internally. And it's important with regard to this that we, again, that we realize and appreciate that we as human beings must look um, objectively at particular life situations which we are involved in to see realistically whether some of the pressure which we are subject to, subjected to is, is worthwhile. If we live in a situation where there is really because of the prevailing circumstances no space in our life and as a result we've suffered in various ways, then it's rather necessary for us to look rather critically at our living situation and to see whether or not some change, forthright change, has to be made. In other words, it is not always possible for a human being, giving, giving, or given the resources that one has, to find space in particular social settings. Space which means the mind which feels at ease, which feels in tune 
and has, at least relatively speaking, a certain degree of peace. So some people have found it quite, quite necessary in their lives to make some change because one has felt that one's, one, well, what one is, is doing is, is basically an impossible task. Trying to live clearly and, and calmly in, in the face of conditions which really don't permit it. But of course, in giving consideration to space and, and the, rea the, the reality of that and the finding of that, one also not only must consider the reality of the outer in our life, but also the, the, the reality of our circumstances, the reality of our, of our inner life. And somewhere, as it were, there is some some kind of balance to be found. There are very few people, for example, who can take, have either the time or the opportunity and usually the money as well, which enables a person to live in a situation where space is readily available. The few, very few people can, af can afford to buy that kind of space. That space and it's obviously worth quite a lot on the on the market, but also in terms of having a break from a situation which is spacious, like the ocean, like the mountains, like the desert, like the rolling countryside, or whatever. And so therefore, finding of space is not only finding time and opportunity to experience those kind of primary elements in all their simplicity. And most people speak of the value of that at some time. Most people say, oh, I love the ocean. I love being in the mountains. I, I, I love the rawness of the desert. I love the, green, the greenery and, and the trees. But few, few people, despite this love of that and the spaciousness that is, that is available for us, few people ever really experience it. Few people ever really take time to, to experience that. And one of the things which one notices about that, that there is space and there is time and there are places and it can be very cheap. <laughs> learning in, therefore, learning in life to see where is pressure, finding various ways and means to find a certain relief from that and, and, and the relaxation and the, and the inner enjoyment that that brings. But really part of the balance to, in terms of finding space is going further and deeper than that. In order to go further and deeper than our normal conventional appreciation of space, it's rather necessary for us to look at our relationship to ourselves and our, and our very specific relationship to what is around us. And if a person, therefore, in giving consideration to this primary element of life, prevalent before words, before the concept, really has some appreciation of that, then one looks at one's life and sees, well, what actions do I engage in which tend to deny that? 
And rather all too frequently, of course, our life, given the vast and extensive circumstances of it, we tend to clutter up our life. And this cluttering up of our life, in terms of possessions, in terms of what is around us, in terms of the acquisitiveness, tends correspondingly to clutter up our mind. And sometimes we only have to go into our, into our own home and look, what, look what's there. And not only do we already have too much, but also we have endless number of ideas about to fill in more and more space. And eventually it can reach the point where one can't put one's arm out without touching yet one more possession. And all of this tends to have a cluttering effect on the mind. And that itself becomes another denial of space, of inner space. So in our, in our looking and in, and in our learning to be realistic, realistic about ourselves, one of the factors which con contributes to a more fundamental or primary relationship to life is learning to be content with little. One obviously doesn't have to buy space, one obviously doesn't have to pursue space, if one can be content with little. And there's a certain dignity, a certain majesty, a certain purity in a, in a way of life in which we find, with regard to possessions, with regard to property, with regard to things that we have, of being content with what we have. A small and, and, and necessary number of items that we have and just appreciating that and just seeing that when that mind moves, when the formations of the mind begin to occupy the space in our, in our mind, in our consciousness about adding one more thing to what we have got, we, we can let that go. Obviously, it is necessary at times to, to increase, to add to our number of possessions and so forth. But a kind of being f spacious in the area of our possessions is not only giving ourselves the freedom to secure something else which we, which we need, but correspondingly having the freedom to give something away. And having that, 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 that in, inner freedom in our relationship to, to things, to possessions, in which giving, receiving and giving is an ongoing part of our dynamic relationship to life. And in that, there, that ex helps to express for us a certain inner spaciousness and a certain freedom in our relationship rather than this prejudice of mind which we have through our uh, cultural conditioning, social conditioning, that it is better to add. And it isn't. We believe that, we, 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 we feel perhaps envious of those who have more, who, are, who have acquired more, and all of that expresses the kind of conditioning which we have because all too often we haven't stopped to look carefully. We haven't stopped to look if there is, if people who have more possessions are in fact better off. 
speaking realistically, of course, meaning that, that people who are poor or people who have little have the basic requisites which they need and work and satisfactory social conditions and especially love and affection and so forth. But all too often, for you and, and for I, that the latent tendency which conceives in terms of having more is a somewhat, for us, a lopsided relationship to life. And a more dynamic and spacious one, in terms of possessions, is that freedom to receive, freedom to give. But of course, again, in establishing a full and caring relationship to life, too, it is also within the given situation that one has, here too to find where and in what way can we find our space within the situation. And within, within any given situation which we have in life, for most of us, there's a certain amount of form, there's a certain amount of structure, there's a certain amount of timetable, and all of that can be taking place within our ordinary, everyday life, just as we experience here. And we notice that at times, when that is happening, some of that form and structure and timetable and so forth, our relationship to that is one of feeling cramped. There's a situation which arises, it's something which objectively saying is, I might say, is actually imposed upon one, or putting it politely is recommended by somebody, or whatever. And that situation comes to us and because it comes to us in numerous circumstances in life, how do we relate to it? And sometimes that relation can be one of simple conformity. Simply, have, simply feeling one has to do this and then rather blindly and um, unquestioningly going along with it. And for another person, it's a situation where this is coming from the outside and immediately it touches inwardly buttons. It brings about resistance inwardly and that resistance again prevents us from seeing a situation clearly. And we look and to ask ourselves, at times has it been one or the other? One of just of, of reaction and, and all that that comes through reaction and, and the other of just um, bl rather blindly adhering to, to something unquestioningly. Instead of seeing and looking and asking ourselves, well, what is my relationship to this schedule? What is my relationship, in fact, to this regime? How do, I experience, how, do I, how do I experience that? And, some, and sometimes, in doing of that, of course, sometimes we look at it, we see what is important, and we examine it, and sometimes we find ourselves, say, just, just avoiding. We look at the notice board and we groan, we hear the bells and we groan, and that kind of action 
we notice during the day. And it doesn't occur to us when that is happening to actually stop and say, why? What, what, what is actually happening internally that is producing the difficult situation? And, and it's never with a view to, as I say, blindly adhering to something, but rather, what is happening? And so one approaches one's relationship to form, structure, timetable, from a standpoint of looking and inquiry. Sometimes, again, we're, we're indoors, we spend many days together here indoors, we appreciate we appreciate the outside, and then one is perhaps engaged in the walking, or one has been sitting in the dining room, and then there's a rush to get outside. And, and it's just a simple, ordinary, everyday pattern which moves us from one particular situation, and we rush into another one, and because of the enormous frequency that we do that in life, we don't give ourselves the opportunity, even for a moment, just to stop and be still and say, what's happening here? What's, 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 what's this telling me? And so sometimes it may be revolving around the question of space. It may be, may be feeling, well, there are too many people in the dining room, I prefer to be outdoors. It, 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 may, it may be... Well, here it's uh, outdoors, it looks much nicer. Inside there's, there's not enough space or whatever. And again, in such a, such a situation, part of awareness and seeing, <coughs> seeing is just to stop in those moments and say, ah, what's going on here? What, what's happening here to me in my relationship to what's in front of my eyes and, and what's coming to my ears? And, and, and so it gives us, that from the standpoint of stopping for a moment, not necessary to necessarily withdrawing from that action or feeling that one oughtn't to go outside or anything like that, but in just that stopping for a moment and being, being still, it may give us the opportunity to see and possibly appreciate a little bit more of what's present already. Some things which we react and turn away, away from, we rather do it so automatically that we never consider what we're turning away from. And, that, and that, that, just that small correcting element inside of ourselves and just stopping. We might just stop. And instead of focusing so much on the people, so much on the, on the objects, so much on the indoor atmosphere, we might just focus on something else. We might just become aware of the amount of space which is around us. We might just become aware of the colour the and the tone and, 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 and the space between the objects. And, and just in opening our eyes and our ears and in our stopping, it may be that we see a little bit more clearly. And that seeing a little bit more clearly gives us, inwardly, a little bit more freedom. 
a little bit more freedom to appreciate things which rather automatically, with all too often, we turn our back on. Because we don't allow ourselves, we, we don't permit ourselves to stop and have a second look. In this finding of space in life and the freedom and delight that that brings, we also see too you know, the, the tendency, and a large tendency that we have in life, is to bring in often far too much interpretation about what is happening. And this being one of our prevalent tendencies, tends to come in in numerous areas of our life. And people who move rather extensively in the conceptual field through concepts and words and thinking and ideas and so forth, and especially if there is so much of an organizational mind at work in one, one way or another, that itself creates for us a rather tight and cramped situation. And, and a tight and cramped situation not only occurs in our perception of others and what is happening around us, but in relationship to many things that we do. And there is, as it were, we feel that success and progress and development and, and many things which we value, we rather feel that the only way that that is possible is through some kind of greater control. And in, and in bringing in control, particularly with a lot of willpower and forcing and, and determination, and I will get this right, and this ought to be done like this, that, that, that kind of mind is obviously a rather re a restrictive mind and being restrictive in that way creates tension. And we become narrow in our perception. And that narrowing down of perception through the excesses of control and the employment of, of willpower and the excesses of the organizational mind, that prevents space. that prevents that sense of spaciousness. And we try to control, and the, the extent that we try to control inhibits that allowing sense within ourselves. And because that mind can be so prevalent in our daily life, therefore within the field of meditation too, the same mind begins to come in. We try to con control everything that happens. We try to con control, control the mind in such a way that we react or we, we reject memory, we reject recollection, we, re we reject anything which is of the future, anything which is about another person, and we regard all of that as an awful distraction to what we're doing. And that's because of 
a misunderstanding which we have come to about meditation practice which is founded in awareness, which is founded in seeing and looking at these things and being conscious of them. And it is not found, founded in trying to cut everything out, cut out past, cut out future, cut out other place and time. It's all about seeing all of that in its relationship to now. And so often we just don't appreciate that, we don't realize that, we don't, we don't see the importance of it. And especially the mind which is susceptible to forms of control, it easily does that. But perhaps, and, and the attention and so forth which is created out of it, but perhaps in this finding of spaciousness, perhaps the more important element of it in focus with regard to organizing, controlling, keeping things tight, in whatever way that is, one of the things which that does in terms of blocking or narrowing consciousness, which we again we fail to see, and this failure to see causes so much pain in life. It, it, the failure, a major failure of that is it doesn't allow for the unexpected. And so there's a spiritual element in life coming deeper inwardly in life and looking carefully at life and comprehensively and, and rea realistically in life in a spacious way, is that one allows for the, that which isn't anticipated, for that which is unexpected. And when we have lived in such a way that we haven't allowed for that, we haven't permitted that, because we want things just so, when something which is unexpected comes into our life, then, then we're washed away by it. We can't handle something when it, when it comes to us. And this universe, which you and I are living, into, living together, has a remarkable habit of sending to us so much which is unexpected, either internally or externally. And so the element of spaciousness in life allows for that. And in that, in, that, in that allowing for that, we live with the universe. Because if we live the other, other, other way, with that lack, lack of seeing, we only live in which we, our relationship to the universe is not dynamic, it's not living, it's not spacious like this universe, it's in conflict with it. We live in conflict with it in such a way that we see the world which we are living in as serving our particular personal ends. And the universe, as it were, says to us, if you live like that, you're going to suffer. So at living and finding in our life greater spaciousness looks at the element of control, looks at the element of keeping things tight, or the, this must be just so, and sees what ways can I find a way of living which I can 
recognize and hopefully appreciate the unexpected which comes to me. And all of us, at different times, in different ways, come face to face with the unexpected. And nobody in this world is free from that. In our looking, and our, and our seeing into this, into this element of spaciousness and our, and our relationship to life, firstly, of, of course, it is this seeing outwardly the situation, and in seeing outwardly too, meaning using our, using our eyes especially and our ears, just as it is important to, to see form and shape and, and color and so forth, but also to begin to appreciate the very space between objects, the very space which allows you and I to move, to act, to breathe, all, all, of, all of that cultivation of spaciousness and just recognizing it as an objective element is a helpful factor in our own life in terms of feeling inwardly, psychologically, that little bit more free. The freedom which allows us to, to move our arms through, through the air, through space, to take hold of something. The, free, the freedom which allows us to open our eyes. The freedom which allows us to, to be, to breathe. And, and having a greater sense of that through a greater sense of, of space allows us in our relationship to life, allows us to see what is happening in front of us and around us a little bit more clearly. When we don't see, when some, someone says something or something happens which we, which we uh, uh, make an issue of, what we actually do is we block out the space around that person, we block out all else and we take that phenomenon and, which looms larger. It looms large in our consciousness. And the looming of, of that in the consciousness reduces our awareness of space. And that, 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 that awareness with regard to space is, because it's a primary element before the words, before the concepts, is one which, in coming to greater awareness of that, allows us to see what comes out of those primary substances more clearly. Allows us to see those things which are happening much more in their context in life. Because we live with a sense of space, we observe it, we, we, we notice it, we see the freedom that it allows, we see that all things are just, simple language, are just held in the space, <coughs> are there in relationship to each other. So it's a, an awareness of our relationship, again at the present, to the outer, and where we're making too much of form, sentient or insentient, and not enough sense of, of, of seeing space. <clears throat> again, in looking not only with regard to what is happening outwardly, it's the same principle the same principle of space, which is also internally. 
the in internal experience which is taking place. And in our, in our in inner life, again, because, so to speak, it's so much closer to us, because our experiences and our events of the day feel so much closer to us, it often seems more difficult to recognize and appreciate the space which is there. And without the space, the, the myriad number of mental events which occur couldn't possibly occur. They occur in a space. And we can't, so often we can't see that because so much is happening. And so the relationship to that is, is initially at the simple level of being able to recognize the satisfaction of quiet or minimal amount of movement of mind and, and a certain quiet, spacious feeling that that gives. That simple, simple state where even if just in a few moments one is simply not feeling bothered by anything. That, that's, that quiet state of not feeling uh, bothered by anything, that just allows us at that time to be and that allowing ourselves to be that we can refer to as being spacious. So far too quickly, in many moments in our ordinary life, just uh, here, we tend, because of the, the pattern, to fill in that space. We feel compelled in some way or other, so often we feel compelled we ought to do something. We ought to make use of the time and space that we have, or whatever. Rather than just seeing that to make real use of it in a meaningful way is just by recognizing it. One doesn't have to add to that in any way. The real use of space, the s for physical, psychological, spiritual health, is recognizing it. It's just taking note. It's just looking at what's present already. In our, in our inner life where there's a, there's a certain quiet, quietness of mind at that time, recognizing it when it is there, but again gr developing that growing capacity to see that even amidst the ups and downs of our mind and the confusion which is taking place, even that doesn't deny space. Once you see, once you observe, okay, that's, that's what's happening. That's what's going on. There's agitation, there's the sensations of that, there's the experiences of that, there are the thoughts of that, and all that process which is taking place. Once you begin to say, okay, that's the reality. That's what's going on in the mind in the present time. And just learning to be with that, that itself accommodates it. Nothing in life is so big. And our growing capacity to be more aware of space, that we can begin to see that these, whatever type of movements of mind which are taking place, because of a greater awareness of space, see that in its place.
through the small things, through the, through the ordinary things, and through the things which are apparently disorganizing in some way or other. All of that is part of universal life. All of that is, 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 is in the nature. And we see that the movement of that kind of activity and motion in the world around us, nature, we see it as the nature of the mind. And awareness and, and our seeing, it's just seeing that. Learning in life to be comfortable with the events which are happening. In that, in that seeing, one begins to sense gradually as, as one's practice, as, one's, uh, as one develops more, more deeply inwardly, that space being an accommodating principle is of such a nature that the whole division of the inner and the outer have less significance. And that in our, in that in our relationship to life, a spacious life, is one which is more, more in a more primary or fundamental way accommodating all which is going on. Just as there can be so much of a dynamic in this expansive universe which we live in, in the same way that a greater awareness of that sees all of that. It sees, just as in the, the movement of a thought which comes and passes, no substantially real difference between a universe which comes and passes, between a whole world which comes and passes. Because one is allowing one to, oneself to see the reality of life, to be spacious in life, to live in a spacious way, to recognize and to, to acknowledge what, is, what comes unexpectedly for us. In this, finally, in this area of space, one of the things with elements which are very much attuned to it, of course, is space and its relationship and direct bearing in terms of silence. And in our life again, in our relationship to life, we often, because of the way that our mind is formed, we tend to only look superficially. And we think silence is quietness, silence is absence of chatter, absence of noise, or whatever. And be because of, of those kind of conclusions, we don't, again, we don't stop to see more deeply than that. And we can so easily fill up our day with doing so much, including so much in the way of meditation and methods and techniques and doing it all neatly and nicely and keeping to the timetable and, and all of that, that we can get so much involved in all of that, we forget the deeper implications of the spiritual life. We don't, we don't allow ourselves, through making ourselves too busy, the opportunity, again, for that kind of stopping where we see, what is the nature of this silence? What is silence? What, 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 what is 
is there a religious uh, significance to it? Is there something fundamentally deep and profound about it? And obviously a wo- thoughts and words are not going to, to answer, not going, to, t- going to, to tell us. And so even within the situation here and the format which we have here, which is, encourages a quietness, which encourages being with oneself and finding one's own space and so forth. All of that really is only a, a tool to the deeper implications of that. The deeper implications which enable you and I to, to really, really see. To really see, to really see once and for all. And not in a, a superficial or a, or a mediocre way. Not in a way which just considers space as finding a bit of space as getting away from pressure. Seeing much more clearly into these primary elements prior to the word, prior to the concepts. And our retreat together gives us little opportunities for that in the mornings and in the lunch period and in the afternoon, in the evenings, in the night gives us the opportunity to see deeply and, and very, very totally. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings appreciate the nature of things. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.